you're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite. So welcome back, everybody. It's the Fearless Business Podcast, and I'm absolutely honored today to invite Daniel Priestley onto uh, the, the, the podcast as our guest. He is the author of not just one, but uh, four amazing books, uh, which I've read all of them, and I, I've, there's sticky notes all throughout all of the books here, but um, it's, it's such a, an honor to have a four-time best-selling international author. Uh, Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much. I, I'm hoping I get to have a Fearless shirt. That look, the shirt looks great. Oh, thank you very much. I'm sure we can get that organized, Dan. What size are you? <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, post-lockdown size. <laughs> we'll call, should we call that a large then, shall we? You're yeah, this we up to me, actually. Call it an extra large now. <laughs> actually, well, it's all about branding, actually, isn't it? I'm sure we'll probably talk about that on, to, uh, on today's episode. Um, listen, I, we'll, we'll get into um, finding out a bit more about Dan and, and your... Does it take fewer since 1981? Yes, Absolutely. So you were born in 1981. Yes, I was, yeah. I'm 1981. Are you really? Yeah, exactly. So we, no must, we must share many common experiences. Well, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of right time and right place, and I'll explain that. So uh, this is probably quite a good thing must, to... 1981 must have been the right time and the right place. Just, <laughs> just like kind of young enough to still be a teenager for the internet and technology but also to grow up mostly without a, a mobile phone or, or without any kind of portable internet or anything like that. So it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting moment to be, uh, to be growing up. Well, my, my first mobile phone was, I think, a Nokia 3310 or something, which yeah. you could kind of play. Do you remember you could play Snake Maybe. on it, but you couldn't yeah. browse the internet or anything no, useful? useful. No, but I was going to say right time, right place was um, I was th- thinking of all those sort of internet sort of um, guru marketers out there who were sort of now turning 48, and that's because the internet is 30 years old. Yeah. And so they, they, they turned 18 at the cusp of the internet being launched. And so they were able to get into the tech before anybody else. Right on, to, right on that cusp. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, listen, I, I was, I'm really intrigued by um, some of the philosophies, and I think some of our listeners will be as well, um, uh, around sort of the, the philosophies of over, getting, getting yourself oversubscribed. You talk about the four drivers for market imbalance, which I think is really appropriate given what's kind of going on around the world at the moment. So do you want to kind of explain what those are and why it's important? Well, the, well, the first concept in that is that there's, it has to be a market imbalance. So um, unless you have a market imbalance, there's almost no room for profit. So if you think about anything that is a pure market that's absolutely functioning beautifully and perfectly, uh, it's very difficult for there to be any um, any profit contained within uh, a market that's got no imbalance. Um, the only time there is a profit is when you're oversubscribed, so when you have more buyers than capacity allows for. So it's, a, it's an interesting one because it's kind of like why does an actor get paid a million pounds per film when a pretty damn good actor who can do a good acting job is struggling to make uh, 100 pounds a day. Um, and because one actor is extremely oversubscribed and the other one's not oversubscribed. And ultimately, that's the main difference. The main difference with all of these things is is to the level that these things are oversubscribed. Um, so you, you have to somehow orchestrate 
your market imbalance. You have to you have to uh, have your own market who care more about you than anyone else, um, and then you have to try and do some things that create an imbalance in the marketplace. Um, so that's that's kind of the first key concept to to, to work in there. But you using the um, sort of acting theme, I think it's. Um you know, you see these actors who are kind of the full-on method actors who spent years like honing their craft and they, they kind of, they go through all of like the, to put it crudely, the shit in order to, you know, for years and years on end in order to then finally kind of have those breakthrough moments and get invited to go and start doing bigger and bigger films. So I'm looking at this in terms of like the, the sort of um, business owners that you and I both kind of work with. And one of the things which I've noticed is that they, they kind of want to rush to the, the end goal. They kind of feel it's for some reason they, they deserve and have earned the right to get straight, you know, those big gigs like straight away. And don't, you know, I call it like stepping over the pounds to get to the pennies though. They're too quick to get the sales now rather than wait for the bigger sales to come in later on. Yeah, so um, if you use the idea of oversubscription, um, it's a lot easier to oversubscribe to small capacity than a big capacity. So when you think about jumping straight to a 500-seat theatre event, let's say, um, where you're going to be the speaker and there's going to be 500 people in the audience, uh, oversubscribing a theatre with 500 seats is actually quite a quite a bit of work. You have to have quite a following in order to get 500 people to pay a ticket. You, you know, you probably need to have a following in the 20 to 50,000 mark um, in order for 500 people to pay 50 quid and come to a, a theatre. Obviously, when you can go to a theatre, um, but um, but getting oversubscribed is a staged event. So. You know, if you said I can take on ten clients this year, but I've got twenty people who want to work with me, that's oversubscribed. If you said um, I'm now going to figure out how to have twenty clients, um, but there's sixty people who want to work with me, now you're oversubscribed again. A hundred clients, now there's three hundred who want to work with me, you're still oversubscribed. So it's always about maintaining that balance of demand and supply tension, regardless of what the demand and supply is. So starting small essentially just means oversubscribing a, a small capacity getting oversubscribed in that initial niche, that initial um, high value capacity that you can offer before then ratcheting up the capacity. Is there, I'm curious, is there like a, a magic sort of <coughs> formula in terms of those numbers though, which um, kind of starts to work? Because uh, I, one of the things I've noticed is a lot of people don't actually take the time mm -hmm. to work out what those the goals are. So it might be they want to get to 10K a month, but they're certainly selling widgets for 10 pounds. And so their capacity is like, the goals are just not, aligned with you know their capacity yeah. there has to be a there has to everything has a mathematical formula attached um so like for example <clears throat> you say about 10 pound uh, product um th there's no way that that can ever be a successful business unless you achieve massive global scale as opposed to someone who sells um something that's ten thousand pounds if they make one sale a month they're on pretty reasonable um you know, pretty reasonable income. So you have to really understand the fundamentals of, of what, um, you know, of what's going on there. The other thing too is, you know, a number like 2,600 units sold doesn't sound like much. Like it kind of in, in a world where we live in a world where we hear the word billion uh, a lot or million a lot, uh, and yet 2,600 is 10 units a day every working day of the year. So you would have to sell more than one an hour every working hour of, of the year in order to achieve 2,600 sales. So when you hear about an author who's sold 2,600 books, it literally means 
for every working day of the year, they've sold 10, 10 books uh, for, for, for that. It's actually remarkably that's quite an achievement when you think about it in terms of how many per hour that equates to. So, and in terms of um, kind of building that audience in the first place, yep. um, what what would you say is kind of a, a good place to start in terms of um, not just now because of the global crisis we're going through? Because I noticed that um, we, I think we share the same sort of ideology around like now is actually a really good time to be building an audience mm. because there are more problems I think nowadays in, in the current crisis that people have to have solved. Um, So what would you say is a good way to start to build the audience, which you're then going to kind of um, reach out for those signals of interest? So um, obviously one of the things that is is really powerful at the moment is that people have time to research, they've got time to watch. There's, you know, very realistically people are on furlough leave. There are a lot of people on furlough leave. So there are people who've got time to um, consume content and, and do a bit of soul searching and do a, everyone's kind of going through a bit of an existential angst at the moment, you know, looking at what should I do with my life and um, how could I improve things, how could I maybe gear shift into a different type of business. So one of the things with having an audience, uh, it's important, first of all, to acknowledge that you need the right message for that audience. You need the right, um, you need to be on on target or tuned in with your audience. If you imagine an amazing singer like Alicia Keys, she's got such a brilliant singing voice that very rapidly she's going to find an audience, whether it be, you know, any of the streaming platforms or any of, you know, all the technology will kind of come and find her. However, if someone was looking at Alicia Keys' success and saying, oh, she's clearly, she's on Spotify, she's on YouTube, she's got, you know, these other places, Apple Music, you think, ah, the key to her success is using those technologies. We say, no, that's not the key to her success. The key to her success primarily is she can sing. Um, And if you're a bad singer, then Spotify doesn't help very much. So um, the the biggest issue is I can say to people, look, you should get yourself a Facebook group and you should fill it full of, you know, some of the right people and you should do a daily Facebook Live. And, yeah, fair enough, okay, that's not a bad tactical strategy. Unfortunately, if you're not talking about something that people really resonate with quickly, they will just tune out from that and and they'll learn, they'll actually learn a behaviour called ignoring you. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I did a, a little um, rant on uh, uh, Facebook the other day, just talking about kind of the value of video. Cause I, I did a speaking gig before lockdown and uh, this young, very enthusiastic person came up to me. I just set up, started up a business and they said, run, 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 seen all of your marketing. Like what's the most important thing I can do from a marketing perspective, like right now. And I was like video. And he kind of looked at me a bit bamboozled bamboos and I was like if you do a video you can have it repurposed into a blog article and send it up to rev.com get it transcribed get the subtitles turned into blog you can create these rich pieces of media content you can upload that into a YouTube channel and I just rattled off all of this stuff and then he looked at me pensively for a second he was like so what's the second most important thing I could do from a marketing perspective so I was like you've missed the point here what's going on and he was just incredibly afraid of putting himself out there on video and being judged yeah and actually being judged and getting negative feedback is just as important as getting positive feedback yeah exactly i saw this um video on youtube the other day where um at the end the guy says 
Um, if you liked the video, give me the thumbs up. And if you didn't like this video, please give me the thumbs down, but also put in the comments why you didn't like this video so that I can learn from it. And I thought, wow, that, that's, a, that's a true entrepreneur. And this guy was very, very successful. Now, most people on YouTube, you've seen at the end of most videos, they say, click like and subscribe, right? And they're kind of like trying to Jedi mind trick you into uh, clicking like and subscribe. The fact was is this guy's a genuine, genuinely successful and he was more interested in you clicking that you don't like and explaining why so that he can learn from it. And I thought that was so, so telling the sign of a great entrepreneur. Um, one of my first mentors or one of my top mentors was this guy called uh, Mike Harris. Uh, and Mike, his favorite piece of advice was embrace critics. And he said, really go out there and ask Ask people, why don't you want to do business with me? What is your what is your reservation? You know, give give it to me straight. Be be really harsh with me. He said, the sooner you can ask those kind of tough questions, if you can create a safe environment and not fight with people and just say, thank you so much for the honesty, and then go away and work on it and not try and correct them, not try and tell them they shouldn't think that. Um, and he said, that's, that's actually how you build a multi-billion pound business. You build a multi-billion pound business by harnessing the critics. I, I wish I'd known that before I got my first one-star review for Online Business Startup, Dan, which obviously you were, you were in part responsible, well, you are re wholly responsible for that book coming out. Well, Not I for the one-star review, I should, I should add to that. <laughs> I, I thought <laughs> you'd never find out that it was me who gave the one-star review. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just imagine. But it was like, it was cutting and that first one-star review came in and, you know, I, I worked really hard on that launch and the book and everything. And then it came in and, um, and I, 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 my, my coach at the time, um, he actually quoted something slightly different to what you've just said there. He quoted, um, uh, do you know the rapper Pitbull? Yeah. Have you heard this story where he had a million dollar lawsuit um, placed, you know, against him because obviously Pitbull's methodology for creating music was sampling. So somebody did a copyright lawsuit against him. And um, I think his mentor was somebody like 50 Cent and 50 Cent just went, Pitbull, you've made it. Because it's like, if somebody's noticed you for something Someone's negative like you. that, yeah, yeah then, then obviously they're threatened by that. Um, and I did actually reach out to that person who left a one-star review. Um, and they, they disagreed with my definition of the word startup. And I was like, cool, well, how could I have made it more clear? Like what yeah. the book was about, you know, he didn't even read the book, I might add. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's really quite interesting. Like when you start to polarize people, I actually think that that is a, that's a good sign from my perspective that you're starting to have a bit more impact. Than you're outside of your, you're outside of your friend's family circle. You're into, you're into a wider marketplace and you've also started to have a little bit of an impact because people feel completely comfortable criticizing you. Um, and people only really feel um, comfortable criticizing you if they think that you're really strong. Um, so they, we kind of feel like we can throw rocks at big people. Um, you know, we don't throw rocks at little people. So the fact that you're getting one-star reviews, actually someone out there thinks that, you know, that you're literally this huge superstar who, um, who can handle having rocks thrown at them. I remember, it's just, this is such a ridiculous story, but I'm, you've lured me into it now, Dan. I'm going to have to share it. But I remember going into my local little coffee house in Stroud in sleepy old Gloucestershire. And um, I, was, I was just stood there chatting to a friend. And then somebody, somebody literally turned around, did a 180 in the queue in the coffee house to me and faced me. And I went, oh my God, I can't believe I'm stood next to Robin Waite. And they'd actually heard my voice from the audio book and recognized it. I was like, wow, so that's, that's such a compliment. I'm so pleased. Imagine if they hadn't have liked the book, what that reaction, I'd have had hot coffee thrown all over me probably but um but that that going back to the polarization side of it and uh, and i think this is like a key part to building on audiences because you need to have 
you, you don't necessarily need to have people throwing stones at you, but you do need to have like uh, a subset of raving fans who then when you do kind of finally ask the question, like I'm thinking about doing whatever the thing is, like launching this product or, you know, opening up the theatre to for, mm. for 500 lucky people or, um, you know, uh, launching a film, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, what's the first sort of step in terms of kind of asking for those, those I can't remember how you word it, signals of sort of Yeah, marketing. I talk about marketing for signals, not sales. One of the, one of the biggest mistakes people make uh, is marketing for sales, uh, trying to get people to, to buy something. And um, I've, I've learned this by testing both ways and both extremes. There's almost absolutely nothing to be gained by marketing your core business. Um, it's extremely unproductive. And there's everything to be gained for marketing for the smallest, most gentle little signal uh, around. So a couple of examples at the moment, I saw a, um, a place in the Lake District that has really upmarket, beautiful cabins, Scandinavian design cabins in the Lake District. Um, and they just look like amazing writing retreats or meditation retreats, go for a long hike and then come back and have a, have a really classy, you know, cabin to come home to. And, um, Anyway, they said at this particular time, we're only making available our cabins through invitation only. Um, would you like an invitation? Would you like information about our, our, our current rostering? And all they're doing, you can't book the cabins. You can just simply enter a signal that you're interested in, in, in the cabin. So you have to put in your email address and, you know, what, what you're looking to get, how many people would stay and a little bit of information, but just the most basic, sim simple signals. So what they're clever in doing is they're not asking anyone for any commitment, no credit card details, anything. They've worded it in a very classy way, but what they're, what they're really doing is saying, just give us the softest signal and we can work with that. Um, it's a little bit like the, the lean principle. So Eric Reese wrote the lean starter, but it's a bit like, you know, going through those, the feedback loops, but starting it even sooner than even having developed any element of a product. You know, yeah. like you look at the likes of Apple and the way they do their launches and they've got people queuing up the door, sleeping overnight in order to get the latest iPhone, you know, and all that starts with is that, that initial kind of signal, Hey, we're thinking about putting out the next version of the, the iPhone in three months time. And then you watch the buzz start to kind of, you know, track upwards. Um, and I, I just think it's fascinating. I, I, I have a saying for the, the, um, uh, the, the signaling for sales. I call it buy my shit offers. I think the world is just too full of buy my shit type offers, yeah. you know, with products that people have spent years and years building that aren't perfected yet. And that's why they're struggling to, to sell it. And also because they're too afraid to actually hear the feedback, you know, about the good and the bad stuff, unfortunately, with their products. So I think if you can get to a stage whereby you're kind of like, I do it quite often in my Facebook group, for example, I'll put something up like, hey, I'm thinking about doing a five-day pricing challenge. You know, who's interested in this? And then you get 50 people. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then, A versus B is really good. Should I do a five-day, do you think I should do a five-day challenge around pricing or a five-day challenge around messaging? And it's kind of like, you know, you get really great feedback if you give people a choice between A or B. Um, because they have to choose one, don't they? So yeah. then they're more likely to act. Oh, that's a really good tip there. Hey, you've just helped my marketing again. <laughs> um, also, as well, it's you know you talked about kind of um, the core the core offer, um, sort of um, you know trying to sell the core offer too soon. So one of the things which I I you know learned from you and through going through the key person influence sort of process, um, you know which is laid out in one of your books, but you talk about sort of, um, I call them sort of marketing assets, but it's P for P's products for, products for prospects. Yeah. Um, why are those so important for particularly for small business owners? 
Yeah, so a product for prospects is is that really easy first transaction, that um, that thing that's super, uh, you know, there's no real commitment. You're not getting yourself, you know, into any uh, any major risk in order to do, let's call it a first webinar or to do a um, to buy a book online. So a book is a great product for prospects, as you would have discovered. That essentially, you know, if you have ten thousand people who've bought a book, you end up with all the clients you could possibly work with because it's such a great product for prospects. It's 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 a built a relationship with a lot of people. Um, so a scorecard is an excellent product for prospects. It's just that kind of like first diagnostic. Um, anything that's free or cheap, uh, really simple, really easy to connect with, but essentially sends quite a warm signal that I must be interested in order to um, in order to work with you. Uh, a great example of this I just saw yesterday was Porsche. Uh, Porsche are actually, I, I saw their ads on um, paid ads on Instagram and they're inviting people to buy some beautiful toy Porsches. So the Porsche 911, um, but they've, they've got some limited edition uh, toy uh, Porsches that you can have on your desk or any of that sort of stuff. And, um, and then they've got a list of other things that you can get. You can get a Porsche pen, you can get a Porsche keyring, you can get um, all sorts of these little Porsche things. But what I thought was interesting about that is that they're marketing for product for prospects. They're actually marketing for a very, very low risk uh, first step to owning a Porsche. But what's cool, let's say I went and bought the toy, which is £35 for for the model version of the toy. I'm signaling that I like the brand, I like the car, I like the design. Um, I kind of, you know, if I'm buying a toy version of it that sits on my desk, I kind of want one. Um, and also the 35 pounds that I might spend actually might pay for the cost of advertising to me. So they, by marketing for something so ridiculously simple as the toy version of the big car, they could, if they were smart, they could say, Hey, look, we've, we've sent you uh, the, the merchandise order that you've sent through. Would you like to talk to us about getting a bigger one, uh, a proper, <laughs> a proper yeah. size one? And they now have my name and my details and my address. Uh, they know that I'm interested uh, enough to spend 35 pounds. So maybe they could get on the phone and have a conversation about, you know, proper grown up Porsche ownership. And that is an example of marketing for product for prospects rather than marketing for the sale. Cause here's the thing. If I'm 99% sure that I want a Porsche 911, how many Porsche 911s will I buy? Zero. In fact, Porsche won't know that I'm interested because if they only give me a binary choice, buy the car or don't buy the car, essentially, even if I'm 99% there, I'm still not there. So they don't know I exist. Whereas if I'm, you know, 10% sure that I want to own a Porsche and they only ask for a very soft, small signal, then I've begun the process. Even though I remember, I'm only I remember you, I think it was you said, uh, told a story once about Tesla when they first moved into the, um, uh, the Westfield shopping center in London and, um, they'd opened up a showroom, but they didn't actually have any Teslas in it at the time. But what they did have is baby grows and golf umbrellas and various things like that. Is it, I think it was you told yeah, the story. So, so they, they, they have one display car and the, the difference with Tesla <clears throat> is that they completely understand that their job is not to sell Teslas. Their job is to get you to spend time with the brand. So one of the key distinctions is that they're not—they're never pressuring you to buy a car. They're just simply trying to get you to spend time around the car, spend time like they really encourage you. Jump in it, have a look around it. 
you know, you know, if you want to go on a test drive, we'll go on a nice 60-minute test drive if you want to. Here's the T-shirts, here's the thing. So essentially that what they're trying to do is get you to fall in love with the brand. They're not trying to sell cars. They're not trying to commit you to a contract. The research suggests that people take seven hours to expose themselves to a brand or a big decision before making a big decision. So when you know that and when you know that that is the research, you don't try and rush that process. You actually try and engage that process. You make it a great seven hours. And if you can get people to have a really positive seven-hour experience with you, then, they, then they're, they're ready. They're actually saying, please, let's sign me up. But look at look how um, sort of accessible Tesla made it by sticking their car in a shopping centre. Yeah, you know. Whereas you've got the likes of um, I'm I'm thinking the one near me. You know, down uh, we've got Cribs Causeway down in Bristol, and um, you got a Tesla in in Cribs. Outside of it, you've got the Audi garage, the VW garage, the Porsche garage, the Ferrari garage, and everything else. You've actually got to make a special diversion to go and mm-hmm. see those. Whereas you could just be walking down past, you know, Boots, the chemist, and, you know, Curry's or Dixon's if they're not still going, I don't think. But, you know, in, in a shopping mall, and there's a Tesla. They just yeah. made it really easy to go and actually in, enjoy their yeah. brand. Yeah, and that was that was done very deliberately because they wanted something that was very foreign to most people to feel completely like it's just available and accessible. So the idea of having a car that has no engine in it, no combustion engine in it, um, they wanted it, what they really wanted was it to feel like, oh, look, you know, there's all these familiar brands that I know and these are all the, you know, companies I've bought with many times before and there's Tesla and it's just this accessible, comfortable thing. There's no big deal. Um, And that's worked really well for them. Well, I, I, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I live on a street and there's lots of cars which kind of come up and down here and you spot the Range Rovers and the Porsches and the Mercedes and things like that. And there's a couple of my neighbors who've got Teslas and I always stop and turn and look at the Tesla, Tesla. And I actually think, I don't think it's necessarily down to the fact that yes, the car is, you know, so innovative and there's lots of amazing features about it, but I think their branding has created that kind of desirability. And I, I've put my name down on Tesla's marketing list countless times because of the way they market, because they they are looking for those signals at all times, which I think is, is, you know, the biggest difference between all the other brands that I see around. Well, I think the really big difference is also the personal brand. So every other car company is a faceless car company. You know, we don't know who the CEO of uh, Porsche is and we don't know who the CEO of BMW is. Uh, You know, not unless you really go looking can you find out who who the main people are at those companies. You know, we know that Henry Ford started Ford and, you know, we know that, you know, uh, Mr. Daimler started Mercedes and all these kind of things and Ferdinand Porsche a hundred years ago was doing, uh, you know, Porsche, but, um, but, you know, there's something very special about Elon Musk, this guy that we're, you know, able to access and see what he's tweeting and watch his videos on YouTube. His personal brand is attached to that, um, that car. So it kind of makes you, if you're buying the car, you're almost buying into his philosophy of being a bit rebellious, being big thinking, um, pushing through limits, being a bit of, you know, a bit cheeky and a bit playful and a bit irreverent. And, you know, for all of those reasons, you're kind of buying into his brand as well. Do you think there's an element, as this is probably a slightly weird question, but do you think there's an element with the other sort of CEOs of those big companies, they kind of want to hide away in case they do get that negative 
you of know, feedback. Elon of Musk isn't, he's like the, he is the essence of the key person of influence in amongst all the CEOs of car companies. I yeah, feel. he's fearless. Because he puts him, yeah, exactly. Because he puts himself out there, which I think is um, so important. You touched on something earlier on as well about um, like scorecards, for example. Yeah. So, Again, going back to the sort of the um, marketing for sales side of things, again, um, you know, it, it immediately creates that friction in there. But also when you're cranking the social media handle, doing the, the marketing, um, you know, marketing for sales, um, it, it, it's like if you stop cranking the handle and putting stuff out there, kind of the action, the activity stops, stops sorry. When you've got assets that you're kind of sweating that are free or cheap to kind of build, but you can kind of, you just put them out there and then they're just time and time again, just doing the work for you. Um, but one thing I've noticed is, for example, that um, the Dent scorecard is really engaging. It's like 50 questions, is it? That you have 40, to kind of go 40 through. questions, yeah. 40 questions. It takes like 10, 15 minutes if you, you know, if you kind of go through it thoroughly and t- to answer those questions. You know, so, so actually having something like a scorecard, which is um, available really quickly and easily on the website and marketing to that, again, is super important, isn't it? Yeah, so it's it's going to be a huge trend that's uh, going to dominate the 2020s because, and it's worth getting in on, on it early. If you look at presidential elections, US presidential elections, they tell you something about how you should market your business because the US presidential election is the most fiercely competitive uh, marketing campaign in the world. Um, every four, it's like the Olympics, right? It's every four years, and it's 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 fierce. Um, and it's winner take all and it's powerful. You know, it's the, a fight for power. So it tells you a lot about the smartest way to market. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt did a radio campaign called the Fireside Chat where he would come into your house on radio, national radio campaign, first time it had ever been done. Up until that point, presidents fought it out with words printed in newspapers. They actually wrote and published their columns that people could read in the newspaper. And then Franklin Roosevelt did a fireside chat and that actually moved marketing onto radio. And then there was the invention of the radio jingle and radio marketing became a massive thing right up until when JFK won a televised debate against Nixon and he moved the whole conversation onto television. And uh, he was the mo- he was more powerful and he won through television marketing and then television became the dominant platform. Jay, um, uh, Obama changed the game when he did a social media engagement campaign. So in 2008, he was a social media marketing um, president. People thought Facebook and Twitter and all these things were ridiculous and just for kids and, and geeky, and he kind of suddenly moved it over there and everyone went, wow, okay, so he's on all the social media platforms. He's doing YouTube videos. Um, so, um, so that changed the game again. But Donald Trump in 2016 did something called Cambridge Analytica. And Cambridge Analytica was collecting data and then running algorithms and then feeding back perfectly tuned marketing messages to people based upon their data. Um, And that was driven by this um, uh, controversial data set of 50 million users, which they then used to create lookalike audiences and all this sort of stuff with Facebook. So what that should tell you is that the future of marketing is about data and analytics. And now if you go on to Trump versus Biden and you actually have a look at all of their ads, all of their ads point you towards a survey. So Trump says, take the Black Lives Matter survey. Biden says, um, is, uh, you know, give us your thoughts and feelings about Trump, take the survey. So almost every single ad, and they're running hundreds of variations, if not thousands of variations of these ads, 
talk about different surveys and quizzes. And what they're trying to do is they collect the data, find out what you think, and then talk to you about the things that you already care most about. Um, now, this should tell you that this is actually going to be the big dominant way to market your business using data analytics and targeted messaging. So, um, essentially, you know, we started doing this five, six, seven years ago. It's been one of our dominant strategies. 65,000 people took the KPI scorecard and it's led to tens of millions of sales. So it's a very, very, very powerful strategy that, I, that we recommend um, people get into, so much so that I've actually become the main investor in a new startup that does scorecard technology. Uh, tell us, you've mentioned it, tell us a little bit more about that. So it's called scoreapp.com um, and for £25 a month, you can build a scorecard uh, and a landing page and a results page. Um, and then people can go online, fill in a scorecard. You get all that data. You, you find out how people answered all the questions. And then you feed people back an insight based upon what they've told you. Um, and then you end up with this great little scorecard uh, tool for the person taking it. They get some insights based on their data. For you as the marketer or the business, you get a lot of data that you can talk to people about their specific wants or needs. Um, so we've built that. I mean, there's, there's tons of kind of um, uh, sort of form building type apps out there and I think one of the biggest differences between those and what score app is doing is that is that actually being able to give that feedback back to the consumer once they've actually completed the um the yeah, scorecard people the answer page and, and and there's also the possibility of giving them a pdf report of of um of their uh, responses and all that sort of stuff the the thing I would say too is that a type form type quiz is more of a data gathering tool for collecting survey data you can actually feed some stuff back but it's 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 a fairly basic form whereas what we've done with score up is it's a it's a, it's a pinpointed marketing strategy we've built it around a marketing strategy not around actual data gathering tools it's built around a very specific way of marketing well that the the data sort of feedback loop is is so important i mean it, it's um I, as a coach i get it quite often people will say something along the lines of oh i couldn't possibly put my prices up nobody will buy it and i ask the question well how do you know? Have you got evidence to, to demonstrate that? So one of the first things we actually get clients to work on, for example, is, well, if we're going to test at different price points, we actually need to go get out there and pitch it to 10 or 20 or 50 people mm. and see how many say yes, see how many say no, or how many say no, not now. Then you can, if, they, if you pitch it to 100 people and they all tell you you're too expensive, you can categorically say it's too expensive and nobody's going to buy. Yeah. So that, that, and you can do that at any point in the business. You know, we talked about goal setting and, you know, making sure that all of the the volume of activity is going to equal up to that you know add up to that goal it's the same with pricing it's the same with kind of gathering data about prospects well, as well. pricing is a great conversation that very few people are having properly and um, essentially people tend to pick a safe price um, that is somewhere middle of the market and it's rarely that safe price that is the is the most mathematically perfect price um, so it's true that if you put your prices up, some people are going to find it more expensive and too expensive. Um, but it's actually might not holistically as a business. It might actually be that even though you lose some, you actually don't lose all. Um, so one of the things that's interesting in this particular coronavirus time is that so many people have dropped their prices. And when the market drops and you drop your prices, you actually get a compounding effect for your business where if the market drops 20%, you drop your prices 20%, like now you're getting 20% less of 20% less. 
um, and you you really are hammering your business to the floor, and it's in many cases you'll never recover. Um, the smartest businesses put their prices up during a recession, not down. And the reason for that is there's less of a market, so they're going to be selling to less people, so they want to actually have the highest possible price for the small group of people that they do sell to. Well, it's all, all capacity based, I think, as well. Yeah, and very uh, counterintuitive, but it but it's much, but it, mathematically, it's better. Well, it, it, there's a um, a friend of mine is a chartered chartered accountant, and he showed me a graph actually, which demonstrates that you know most people assume if you put your prices up by say ten percent, that actually you need to sell ten percent, you know, less in order to make up for the ten percent. But again, counterintuitively, if you put your prices up, if you net sorry, gross profits about thirty percent, and you put your prices up by 10%, you actually need to sell 22% fewer of the same thing. And it just, it, it baffles everybody's brains. They can't comprehend the math that went, you know, yeah. goes into that. So, you know, imagine if you then double your prices, how much fewer you've got to sell in order to make the same amount, that compounding effects, you know, happens. Yeah. And, and you can see this with brands like Ferrari. So Ferrari is um, quite a valuable brand. I think they're up around eight or 9 billion in market capitalization um, and it makes them, you know, uh, like I think BMW is at 38 billion, but BMW sells thousands of times more cars than Ferrari. Um, but Ferrari is very profitable uh, because they've got a very, they've got a niche. They're at the top of the market. Price wise, they're profitable for every car. Um, and, um, you know, and that's what gives them a, a better business. You talked about as well sort of the bandwidth there about people kind of choosing a price, which is kind of somewhere in the middle of like the most expensive and the cheapest as well. But what I've realized is that actually if, if the market is, if there is a certain segment of the market that is willing to spend, you know, a lot of money on your product or service and you're, you're less than that high, that high end, you're actually discounting your product without even realizing it. They don't yeah. even know that they're offering a discount into the marketplace. You're almost in the red ocean of your marketplace always as well too. So that middle band is is red ocean. Um, you tend to have a successful business if you can find a way of delivering something way cheaper than everyone else. So, um, you know, if everyone else is selling for 150 and you can figure out how to do it for £1.50, uh, you know, and it's 1% of everyone else or it's 3% of everyone else, that tends to create an incredible cut through in the marketplace. Uh, alternatively, being at the top end uh, is tends to be a, a better strategy. Being somewhere in the middle tends to be the most competitive and, and um, red ocean part of the, uh, part of the equation. The, um, uh, the, the other thing that, the, the other big thing that people fail to realize is that there's not much of a middle class left. So um, I know we're getting into kind of society, but uh, in this thing, but they, you know, we grew we grew up 1981. We grew up in a time where there was actually a really strong middle class. That if you're a doctor, a teacher, a nurse, um, a police officer, you got paid pretty damn well, and you you know you could afford a mortgage and you could afford uh, to buy some things, and you probably had a decent credit score and all that sort of stuff. Today, if you're a school teacher, you probably have a second job. Um, if you're a doctor or a nurse, you probably can't afford to buy and get a mortgage uh, for a house. Um, you know, there are plenty of nurses who have been nurses 15 years and they still flat share in London. So it's it's pretty vile that these jobs haven't had pay rises for 10 to 15 years, um, effective pay rises. So there isn't really a middle class. Now, on the other side, the top 5% of every industry has gone ex exponentially up in income. So um, in the top 5%, 
if you if you're a top five percent income earner, your relative pay is three hundred percent from nineteen eighty one. Uh, so the the top five percent earners are earning three times their equivalent. Uh, the you know from from pre nineteen ninety levels, pre pre internet, pre computer. So essentially, this doesn't feature in most people's minds because we think linear, not exponential. And what we're, what most people haven't figured out is that the top five percent of the marketplace has exponentially more purchasing power, and um, you're you're probably better off if you're a personal trainer or fitness trainer. You're probably better off having eight clients who can afford to pay five grand each um, for for a fitness transformation for a couple of months than having hundreds of clients that are middle middle of the road pricing. Absolutely. Uh, it's probably a, sh- a quick question with a very long answer. And I know we're running short of time now, but um, you, you speak quite passionately about kind of the public sector workers there. And um, I know you're obviously also involved in Alex's program, Police Officer to Entrepreneur, Shift to Success. Um, his, his book, sorry, was called Police Officer to Entrepreneur. But what would you do to change to, to kind of redress that gap and kind of bring some equality back? It's a really difficult problem because um, what's happening is that we're we're going into a very different era. Like we're actually moving through a different era. So if you think about the agricultural age, um, we, at, at that particular point in agricultural age, farming land was the most valuable commodity because we were working our asses off to get food production. Um, and then the industrial age happened. Suddenly, food production became a total given. That's not even a, a concern anymore. We can have tractors doing that. But now we're trying to organise labour for goods and service production. We want to create goods and services, trinkets, gadgets, clothes, all of these types of things. So what's happened is we've gotten right up to the end of the industrial age and we've now said, well, actually, goods and services are a given. Like we've got factories and automation and, you know, any, any good or service you can imagine, you can just get it on Amazon and it's done. It's as Literally, it's as, as much of a given as fruit and vegetables are now. So we've hit that, that edge. And it's all automated and computerized and, and all that sort of stuff, and it's global. Um, and we're now moving into a different era. And the different era is where we're no longer organizing labor for the production of goods and services. We've got, we're, we're now into digital assets. We're leveraging, we're ex- trying to exploit ideas. Um, so the new, uh, like if you think about f- farming, it's the exploitation of land for food, factories, the exploitation of labor for goods and services. And now it's the exploitation of ideas and the product of the future is going to be movements, like basically creation of a movement of some sort. Um, And essentially that will be the main product. You'll be producing a movement. Uh, So um, that's what businesses will do. And um, and the issue that we have right now is we're reorganising society. So, you, you, you know, you say, well, how do you fix this problem? Well, the, the, the short answer is pay people more, right? Find a way to give people more, except for we have an ageing population, we don't have a lot of people paying taxes anymore, uh, all, all those fundamentals are broken, so it's easy to say let's pay people more, but actually um, the fundamentals of how you do that is a little bit tricky. Um, and and we are actually going into a the, the bigger answer is that we're going into a completely new age, like a new, a completely new society that our head isn't ready for. Most most people, if you talk about what we'll be doing for jobs in 10, 15 years, most people's heads are not ready for understanding. In the same way farmers who are farming on the land could not conceive of, of a factory that produces thousands of shirts. 
I I could literally sit and listen to you, and I'm sure I've had so many comments actually in the in the live stream as we've been chatting as well. I could sit and listen to you all day, Dan. Um, and I know that Dan, obviously, you know, in terms of like redressing some of the imbalances around the world, you're doing quite a lot of work at the moment with the United Nations or through the United Nations Global Goals. Um, you've given how much? or helped donate how much to charity well, we've now? Raised, we've raised like, I don't know, five or 600,000 pounds for charity, but um, our, through our clients, it's millions and millions, you know, like a huge part of what we do is now the leverage of getting other businesses to fundraise, uh, to do pro bono work, uh, to change the way they run their business. So we, we have about five ways that you can use your business as a force for good. And we're very much focused on a being that ourselves, which we do, but also trying to get three to five thousand companies to do that as well. Um, our goal is to build up a you know ten thousand plus companies globally that are using their business as a force for good in the world. I Make think that's them. fantastic. Um, listen, we've come to the end. I've got two final questions. So um, tell tell everybody who's listening very quickly um, just a twenty second pitch for Dent and what you get up to. So Dent develops entrepreneurs that stand out in noisy marketplaces, scale up to achieve commercial success and make a positive impact in the world. So stand out, scale up and make a positive impact, make a dent in the universe. Um, it, the, the name comes from the Steve Jobs quote that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, why not aim to make a big dent in the universe, uh, do something meaningful and impactful. Um, we run accelerators all over the world. So we have um, a key office in Toronto, in Sydney and in, in London. Um, and we construct a cohort of 50 to 60 people who are selected from over 2,000 people who fill in a scorecard. Um, it creates a high-performance environment. We get super successful entrepreneurs to, to lead workshops and mentoring. We run asset sprints to do very fast-paced transformation. And it's very much about making the most of the times that we're in and being part of a high-performance environment. Well, I absolutely love Dent and I can speak very highly of the Key Personal Influence Program. Uh, being a graduate myself, I can say, you know, hand on heart, it's made such a massive difference to me. Um, and also I'm doing my bit. I can be one of the 5,000 who are doing their bit and improving the world. Uh, we've uh, so far raised somewhere in the region of about £7,000 for uh, local charities and an international charity. And probably I don't think I'd have started or have been inspired to do that without uh, your help, Dan. So I really appreciate Amazing. it. Amazing. And that well, adds up really fast. If you get a thousand companies doing that, that's millions, millions, millions. Absolutely. So we'll pop a link to um, so the website's dent.global. We'll pop a link to um, Score App into the show notes as well. Um, and also link to the scorecard because I think it'd be re really useful for our, our, some of our listeners to potentially go and fill that out too. Very final question, Dan. Um, we're going to hop into the um, Fearless Business Time Machine now. And we're going to go back. I used to say 10 years, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to go back to a period in your life where you need to sit down and have a word with yourself. So when would it be and what would you say to yourself? Do you know, I'm not really, I'm not really, I'm, I'm not worried about um, changing much. I'm quite happy with the way things worked out and there were certain terrible lessons that I had to learn and I learned them, you know, I learned them. Uh, I th I'm actually quite happy that when, when I got punched in the face, I learned from it pretty quickly. I often haven't been punched in the face twice um, I don't mind getting punched in the face by business. I don't. I don't like it if I repeat the same mistake over and over. Um, you know, obviously, the the obvious answer would be to go back to two thousand and three and say, drop everything, go to Harvard, make friends with this guy called Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> and and if he wants five grand to get started, you give him that five grand. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I think that I think that's a good tip. That's I think that's not a bad use actually for the fearless business time machine. I don't think that's taking advantage of it whatsoever. 
<laughs> Listen, Dan, I'm I'm so grateful for you um, for you taking the time to um, for the interview today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, and hopefully we can get you back on a bit later on because there's um, uh, uh, maybe later on this year because I'd love for the listeners to hear a bit more about your personal story as well and how you came to sort of set up Dan and things like that. But Brilliant. thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Dan. Thanks, Robin.